I've got guests, music, comedy, and old Alan Watts lectures from the 70s. How can you resist? You can't! I put a spell on you! Ah! MutinyRadio.fm is an official shrine of the miraculous garlic of Mount Cavalry. We are not associated with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, except on Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Hope to see you there. Or hear you, I should say. Hey, Zach Wiseman, you're a good comedian. You know how I got good? How good? How did you get so great at comedy? I got great at comedy. During happy hour. Yeah. Every Friday from 6 to 8 with new host Trina Roderick. It's where um, people go and sometimes they smell bad and sometimes they don't smell bad. Mutiny Radio made me great. <laughs> Mutiny Radio made me better than you. And that you can be better than everyone else, too, every Friday from 6 to 8 on Happy Hour here at Mutiny Radio. But you'll be- never be better than me. You'll never be better than me. You'll never be better than Zach. And you also, it's a happy hour, but we don't have any alcohol, so it's happy-ish. But you're going to do comedy. I'll do comedy. And you're going to enjoy comedy. Just be an audience. Just come. It's free. Yeah, I just drink in my car. <laughs> you could like drink. Like an adult. Exactly. Drink drink around the corner somewhere else. Not here. But uh, come to Happy Hour every Friday from 6 to 8 with Trina Roderick. Yeah, do that. Tell me what you think about your situation. Complication, aggravation. Is it getting to you? Then tune in live every Sunday from 12 to 2 p.m. to the Edge of Insanity with myself, Paul Brumbaugh. Kit Marie. Brandon Ray. And Mistress Christine. All on Mutiny Radio. That's right, PCRcollective.org. We'll see you there. Are you a stand-up comedian? Do you want to be in 25 shows in five days at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco? Well, now's your opportunity. Apply now for the Spark Presents third annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, March 1st through 5th. That's 25 shows in five days featuring 40 comics from out of town, and one of those comedians could be you. Go to our website, www.mutinyradio.fm, and click Click on the submission form. Apply for the Spark Presents third annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's only $10, and you can apply right now through November 30th for 25 shows during five days, all streaming live, all podcast posts, all Mutiny Radio, all the time. The third annual Spark Presents Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Apply now. Safe and unrefrigerated food. After a storm or disaster, it's important to eat.
against the kingdom's throne
Good morning, mutineers. This is the BNUR tuned in to Mutiny Radio. We're come to you every Saturday morning from 10 to 12 in the morning with uh, labor news, commentary, opinion, interviews. Your weekly Labor Day. Good morning. I'm the B. A.K.A. Bill Morgan, proud member of two local unions. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, too, that if you don't have a seat, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. And... Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Well, good morning, everybody. What do we got for you today? We got, well, we already had it. We had Pata Pata with Miriam Mikiba, who was a featured artist last week. Just thought I'd repeat that one. We had People Get Ready from the Neville Brothers. People get ready. Have faith. The greedy ones will lose out. The hard workers will win out. The ones who earn the billionaires' money for them. We had What's Going On. Well, we didn't play What's Going On, did we? We played The Do Run Run. That's a... Uh, a personal one. <laughs> I like to uh, I like to play that from time to time to make myself feel good. She met him on a Sunday and starts. Okay, let's see if we got. We'll get you what's going on. Hmm. Where's my apple pie? We got so many good songs here. John Legend, legend. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, brother, brother. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today Father, Father We don't need 
need to escalate Oh, you see, war is not the answer For only love can conquer hate You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today Oh, picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Come on, talk to me so you can see Legend with a 
beautiful version of What's Going On, Marvin Gaye hit. What's going on? War is not the answer. There's too much confusion here today. Before that, as I said, we had People Get Ready by the Neville Brothers. We had my own to do run run to do run. Met him on a Sunday and my heart stood still. Somebody told me that his name was Bill. And Pata Pata by Miriam Mikiba, the uh, South African performer and activist against apartheid. For a while was a veritable fugitive. She couldn't go back to her home country until the 1990s. It's the Labor and Love Show. Let's listen up now to some radio labor. This is a world labor report. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 3rd, 2017. I'm Mark Belanger. In Geneva this week, 1,300 representatives of public sector unions met at the World Congress of the Global Union Public Services International. The PSI represents 20 million workers in 150 countries. I talked to Rosa Pavanelli, the PSI's General Secretary, about the themes of the Congress. For us, it's important uh, to consolidate the work uh, that we have been developing so far and we want uh, to enhance in the next five years uh, related to tax justice and to a fair system of trade. Uh, Tax justice is one of our priorities because we consider that without a fair tax system at global level, it won't be possible to eradicate poverty and it won't be possible to create the condition for reducing poverty and to re-establish more equality around the world. The second theme is the fact that our fight against privatization of public services and in particular this wave of public-private partnerships that are the real tool to open the door for privatization of public services is continuing around the world. Ms. Pavanelli was re-elected as the PSI's general secretary for a second five-year term. One of the delegates attending the PSI conference was Tafari Gabre. Mr. Gabre is the executive vice president of the largest labor federation in the United States, the AFL-CIO. He called for a global pact to protect migrants. Last year, I had one of my utmost honors to address the UN General Assembly and shared my perspective as an immigrant, a refugee, person of color and the labor leader in the United States. I spoke about the need to promote rights-based policies and the end of criminalization and exploitation of migrants. Since then, the situation has only gotten worse. The Trump administration is terrorizing immigrant communities, work sites, tearing apart families and threatening people who came to the United States at a very young age with their parents and have only known 
the United States to be their country. A year ago, at the UN, I could have hardly imagined the threats that we'd be facing today. This is personal for me. I was a child when I left Ethiopia at the age of 14 to escape political violence. And I'm grateful the United States extended a hand for me and I settled in the United States. Brothers and sisters, I know firsthand how much refugees and migrants can achieve and contribute when they are given a chance. Since arriving in the US, I have spent my entire life organizing to ensure that all workers, regardless of immigration status, can exercise their rights collectively and lift each other up. And that's what, our, what we're seeing across the United States today. Hotel workers, farm workers, teachers, taxi drivers, public construction and retail workers have been making their voices heard from cities, from Los Angeles to Phoenix, from New York City to Austin, and many points in between. Union members are defending our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends from being swept up in immigration raids. Working people understand that when a government terrorizes people who are simply living their lives and going to work each day, we all lose. When we allow ourselves to be divided, we're weak. When we are weak, standards erode, not only for migrants, but for all of us. We have to keep the fight up from the local level all the way up to the global level. That's why I feel strongly that we must unite and fight to build a more just global system for millions and millions of other migrants and refugees. It's essential that a new commitment related to global compact on immigrants must empower workers to exercise their right. We need a global compact that gives workers of all skill levels a real chance at family reunification, permanent migration, and raise standards for all working people. Many existing regular channels for labor migration fail miserably in meeting basic standards and are just not fair or even in many cases safe. From the Gulf region to Southeast Asia to North America, workers entering secular temporarily, temporary labor migration programs face exploitation, recruitment practices are restricted in their movements and risk detention and deportation if they dare speak up, threaten to leave or otherwise exercise their rights. These are fundamental failures of the employer-controlled visa system. These programs do not empower workers, nor do they contribute to equitable development. They merely continue to swell corporate profits at the expense of all of us. Sisters and brothers, we must elevate the human and labor rights of migrants, allow for permanent migration and regularization, and empower workers to exercise their rights to take collective action free from state and employer interference. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 360 news stories added to our site each day last week. 
Our top story section included links to stories about the decision by a Canadian union to revoke a human rights award it gave to Aung San Suu Kyi, a global campaign by the International Federation of Journalists to end impunity for attacks on journalists, and a hunger strike in Mauritius that resulted in a victory against precarious work. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Bangladeshi container port lorry drivers parked their trucks for 48 hours earlier this week in a protest over increased vehicle taxes and police harassment. Bermudan dockers downed tools in an effort to press their wage demands. American teachers ended a wage dispute and returned to work this week, while in the same country, care home workers were forced to continue their walkout after their employer unilaterally imposed cuts to their benefits. Medical Institute workers in Pakistan set up a permanent camp to house their sit-in protest over the restructuring of medical research facilities in that country. Nigerian local government workers ended their walkout after months of wages owed were paid, while other public sector workers held a three-day warning strike this week after the government failed to implement a wage agreement reached in September. And in South Africa, beverage workers began a national wage dispute with a walkout, as did security guards. Our top working women stories included coverage of the life history of an Indian trade union activist and the Australian union that has given that country's government 100 days to address the gender pay gap in early childhood education. The Health and Safety Newswire we run in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the deaths of eight Indian rail workers killed while sleeping after excessive overtime when an unsafe building collapsed on them, new restrictions on workplace carcinogens in Europe that are expected to save 100,000 lives over the next 50 years, and union concerns about health hazards in Barbadian schools. Currently, Labor Start is running six online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Radio Labor's newscasts are available on its website, iTunes, Facebook, union websites, and community radio stations. Follow us on Twitter, at Radio Labor. I'm Art Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Hey, that was the World Labor Report. <clears throat> Here's the Win Weekend Review. Workers Independent News Weekend Review. I'm Doug Cunningham. We will not lie down. We will not go away. We will not cower. We will not submit. We will not be fooled by your propaganda or bought by your money. Nothing will stop the will of working people when you trample on our rights and show solidarity and activism and the union are our tools and our weapons.
New York City public advocate Letitia James talking about the IBEW Spectrum strike in New York City. 1,800 workers on strike for eight months for a fair contract are taking their Spectrum charter campaign to 41 states. Public workers in Kentucky are fighting back against proposed pension changes that would harm them and their families. Joanne Powers reports. State worker Nima Brewer, a member of the Fayette County Education Support Professionals Association, says workers have been increasingly targeted since January, with Republicans now in control of both the governorship and the legislature. They've pushed through an anti-union right-to-work law and gutted prevailing wage protections. We've seen our rights as workers being attacked more and more over the last year. Here in Kentucky, the latest, I guess, piece of that puzzle has been to pretty much decimate the public employee pension system. So we're really trying to push back against that today. For the first time, you're seeing in Kentucky, the little guy can actually push back against all these corporate interests that are coming in. The proposed legislation would move workers to a defined contribution plan, freeze pensions at 27 years of service, and increase employee contributions. The National Union of Healthcare Workers, NUHW, is launching a national effort to organize private sector mental health workers. NUHW President Sal Roselli says his union is partnering with IAM, Machinists Union, to make mental health the leading civil rights issue of today. So why do workers choose to go within UHW? They almost always respond with something like, well, number one, we've done our research. We want a union that we control. We want a union that'll help us fight our employer. We don't want a union that partners with our employer. We're not looking for another boss. So NUHW is the place for us. The Union Veterans Council is urging President Trump to veto U.S. Senate Joint Resolution 47, which was passed 51 to 50 with Vice President Pence casting the deciding vote. The Union Veterans Council's William Attic says that the president should stand with veterans and veto this resolution. That resolution removes consumer protections important to veterans when dealing with big banks and financial corporations. Along with what the American Legion did, we are calling on President Trump to choose between two options. He gets to choose between corporate lobbyists and big banks, or he gets to choose with the side of the men and women who fought and bled for their country and veto this bad piece of legislation. It's un-American, it strips rights away from consumers, and it's frankly an anti-veteran bill. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. Workers Independent News there. 1,800 people on strike in New York. See how that turns out. Everywhere at all times, people are struggling in their workplace, are struggling in the conditions that their work causes for, well, what do we call it? Freedom? Justice? Something like that. Okay, I want to introduce you now to a woman named Malvina Reynolds. If you haven't heard of Malvina Reynolds or you don't know about Malvina Reynolds, um, she's a local person born in San Francisco in 1900. Lived to be 78 years old, died in 1978. And produced songs anti... Uh, Songs of Resistance. What Have They Done With the Rain? Recorded by The Searchers, The Seekers, Marianne Faithful, Joan Baez about nuclear fallout, this one. It Isn't Nice, a civil rights anthem, Turn Around, about children growing up, later sung by Harry Belafonte. 
And there's a bottom below about personal depression. So we're going to play some of her music today. <clears throat> and um, let's see. Let me get Malvina Reynolds. Malvina Reynolds was driving. She said she was uh, driving with her family and she went up to Daly City looking for somebody's home. Place where she was supposed to go before performing. But she couldn't find the place. And uh, all, it had been overbuilt. And there were all hundreds of houses that looked pretty much the same. So she composed this song about them. Malvina Reynolds was your very picture of a Berkeley, a white Berkeley folk singer, but she was profound as well. Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes made of ticky-tacky Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes all the same There's a pink one and a green one And a blue one and a yellow one And they're all made out of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same And the people in the houses All went to the university Where they were put in boxes And they came out all the same And there's doctors and lawyers And business executives And they're all made out of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same And they all play on the golf course And drink their martinis dry And they all have pretty children And the children go to school And the children go to summer camp And then to the university Where they are put in boxes And they come out all the same And the boys go into business And marry and raise a family in boxes Made of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same There's a pink one and a green one And a blue one and a yellow one And they're all made out of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same
my bones And what is left will have to go For one of those granite stones But this suit cost me two weeks pay So let it live another day And bury me in my overalls The grave, it is a quiet place There is no labor there And I will rest more easy The friend of the poor 
and the wild grass growing at the poor man's door and God bless the grass Okay, Malvina Reynolds, three songs by her. That last one was God Bless the Grass. Um, Whitman-esque, Carl Sandburg-esque. How about the grass? How about the grass being uh, something that we all hold in common, something for everybody. And before that, we had Bury Me in My Overalls. Truly a worker's anthem, talking about all the places she's worked and all the different jobs she's had and how she's proud to be a worker, so she wants to be buried in her overalls. And the first one we played was her big hit called Little Boxes, recorded by Pete Seeger. And again, uh, this song was conceived not far from here, going up the hill in Daly City. Uh... She was going to a place where she remembered very few houses, then all of a sudden there were all these houses. And it was like sameness was being projected. <clears throat> Conformity. Little boxes on the hillside. Let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, a feminist anarchist band, Pussy Riot was in the news again this week. And um, making trouble. <laughs> Here's the story. Pussy Riot shuts down Trump Tower in New York. This is on uh, Yahoo. By the Independent, May Oppenheim. Pussy Riot stormed Trump Tower in New York to voice their opposition to the actions of U.S. President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Russian feminist punk rock group staged the protest in the 58-story skyscraper, which is the headquarter of the Trump Organization, to draw attention to the incarceration of political prisoners. Wearing their trademark makeshift balaclavas made out of woolen hats, the group unfurled a banner calling for a, a Ukrainian film director imprisoned in Russia to be released. The protests reportedly saw the lavish tower shut down for half an hour. The police closed the tower for half an hour after our action, Pussy Riot's Maria Alekina, who was sentenced for, to two years imprisonment in 2012, are being convicted of hooligan, hooliganism motivated by religious hatred for a performance in Moscow's Church of Christ the Savior. A group who are based in Moscow argued the plight of political prisoners was more important than the sexist bulls that Westerners have centered their energies on. We came to occupy Trump Tower to call attention to political prisoners. We believe that political prisoners and their protection are more important 
than the sexist bullshit that people have been focused on. Pussy Riot. And uh, let's play something by Pussy Riot. These are some strong women who are uh, not going to go away. It's called Punk Prayer. Football show with that all time. Okay, Pussy Riot there, with a little bit of Red Grange. <laughs> um, Pussy Riot with their song, with their <clears throat> actions, are anarchists. They're fighting fascism with the weapons of anarchism, <clears throat> which was being outrageous, speaking truth directly to power being outrageous in their expression and uh, they've been sentenced to various stints in jail because they 2012 I believe they broke into a big church and uh, staged a happening there and they were arrested So Pussy Riot and their latest, their latest exploits. Uh, doubtless, not many of you know who Iqbal Masih is. Iqbal Masih is one of those people who does uh, wonderful things, but is sort of on the side of the news media, so they're not lionized. Iqbal Masih is a 12-year-old boy, was a 12-year-old boy, who was sold into bonded labor for less than $7 to pay for his sister's wedding. 
He's forced to work 12-hour days, seven days a week for pennies. When he was 10, he escaped from a carpet factory. Actually, he escaped three times. The first two times he was taken back by police to the factory owner. Iqbal Masih did escape and traveled the world, raising public, con public consciousness about child labor. We're talking about 200 million children, people less than 18, who work in slave-like conditions each day. Truly the basis of international capitalism in a way that slave labor was the basis of American capitalism in the 19th century. So many industries depend on child labor. Iqbal Masih, when I was 10, I escaped from a carpet factory and helped free over 3,000 kids from slavery. Then I toured various cities in Pakistan asking masses to stand with me against child-bonded labor before I was murdered. I died standing up for my beliefs at the age of 12, but was murdered. Um, he was riding his bike. He was riding his bike and he, um, was shot by, and then, of course, theories abound that the guy was hired by the rug owners or that the word was out that it would be okay to murder this kid, which they did. He says, I died standing up for my beliefs at the age of 12, but most people have never heard my name. Hear, hear. Iqbal Masih, I-Q-B-A-L-M-A-S-I-H. Check it out. One of the uh, labor cards, labercards.com, not labor, no, I'm sorry. We have a Facebook um, page for labor cards. And Iqbal is featured on one of them. The labor cards are available through CFT. Instead of 30 labor cards about labor heroes, labor leaders, prominent labor people. Um, Iqbal Masih is one of them. So let's see. Iqbal um, inspired kids, uh, seventh grade kids in New York to raise money and cause a, church, a school to be built, a school that specialized in dealing with children who had been released from bonded labor. Iqbal himself, uh, his growth was stunted because he spent just about his whole life in front of a loom. And you know, we know why children are preferred. They're easy to control. You just scare them or beat them or 
or treat them cruelly and they'll do what you want and they'll work because they have to and you can force them to work. So we want to take some time today to honor young man Iqbal Masih. Let's see. I'm going to go to Labor and Love Radio now. See you in a bit. Okay, of course, Miles Davis. This one is a tribute to uh, Uruguayan writer, poet, historian Eduardo Galeano. This is on the Portside website. Galeano died just recently, and his last book, published book, or is just being published now, is called Hunter of Stories. 
Let's read a little bit about what he says. I'm 73, which means that saying goodbye for the last time is increasingly a part of my life. Today, with the deepest respect, I'm bidding a final farewell at Tom Dispatch to one of the most remarkable writers I've known, Eduardo Galeano. I initially got involved with him in the early 1980s. I was a young editor at Pantheon Books and on some strange impulse decided to publish Genesis, the first volume of his Memory of Fire trilogy, based on no more than a few sample passages translated by the remarkable Cedric Belfridge. Call it intuition when it came to a book that had already been rejected by a number of U.S. publishers. Admittedly, at the time, I proudly thought of myself as the editor of Last Resort. That modest decision launched me on a print journey of a lifetime. Okay, here's some some excerpts from... He says, this one is called Free. Now, Galeano writes little short pieces about history or about, well, nature, the world around him, about how there's, he's got this constant kind of um, dialogue going on between the very general and universal and the very specific and uh, ephemeral. Free. By day the sun guides them, by night the stars. Paying no fare, they travel without passports and without forms for customs or immigration. Birds are the only free beings in this world inhabited by prisoners. They fly from pole to pole, powered by food alone, on the route they choose and at the hour they wish, without ever asking permissions of officials who believe they own the heavens. Shipwrecked. The world is on the move. On board are more shipwrecked souls than successful seafarers. Thousands of desperate people die en route before they can complete the crossing to the promised land, where even the poor are rich and everyone lives in Hollywood. The illusions of any who manage to arrive do not last long. One more. St. Columbia was rowing across Loch Ness when an immense serpent with a gaping mouth attacked his boat. St. Columba, who had no desire to be eaten, chased it off by making the sign of the cross. Fourteen centuries later, the monster was seen again by someone living nearby who happened to have a camera around his neck, and pictures of it and of curious footprints came out in the Glasgow and London papers. The creature turned out to be a toy, the footprints made by a baby hippopotamus, baby hippopotamus feet, which are sold as ashtrays. The navigation did nothing to discourage the tourists. The market for fear feeds on the steady demand for monsters. So that piece is called 
appropriately enough, Monster Wanted. Referring, I would suppose, to the need of our governments to defend us from something, to make up something to defend us from. Let's see if we got some stuff of Eduardo Galeano. Eduardo Galeano. Here's an interview with Galeano. tener aliento hay que tener desaliento para levantarse hay que saber caerse up, para ganar hay que saber perder win, y hay que saber que esa es la vida nomás y que te caes y te levantas muchas veces y algunos se caen y no se levantan nunca más que en general son los más sensibles los que los más fáciles de lastimar la gente a la que más le duele la gente más sensible, y en cambio estos hijos de puta que, <laughs> que se dedican a atormentar a la humanidad y en vida la humanidad, viviendo Born in Uruguay, his trenchant but poetic prose came to be identified with the struggles and the soul of an entire continent. We asked his friend and fellow writer, Tariq Ali, what made Galliano special. I think Eduardo Galliano was a very unique person uh, in the history of the South American continent. What Simon Bolivar accomplished with his sword, Galliano attempted to accomplish with his pen. He wrote about the entire continent. He covered aspects of history that had been unknown to many, many people in South America, leave alone the rest of the world. He wrote about the indigenous people. He wrote about the workers of South America who built the lines on which trains crossed borders. He was a lyrical journalist. And I think he was both optimistic and pessimistic. Uh, his will was very optimistic. His intellect could be pessimistic. Why? because he had observed with his own eyes the period of military dictatorships in South America, when American imperialism attempted to crush the resistance in every single South American country. And in Galeano's own country, Uruguay, the repression was vicious. 
So he's lived through that phase. And then he lived to see the rise of the world social movement in Porto Alegre. He lived to see the victory of the Bolivarians in Venezuela, in Ecuador, in Bolivia. He lived to see the recovery of democracy in his own country, Uruguay. And he saw Mojica become the president of Uruguay, a former Tupamaros guerrilla. So he naturally felt both pessimistic and optimistic. And the most important thing about him is that his example of writing pure, truthful journalism, of telling stories about the lives of ordinary people that many young journalists today could learn from. Galliano's reflections were very clear. They were expressed in all his books, many of his essays, and the numerous interviews he gave. He felt that the empire of the North, the United States, had done a great deal of damage to the South American continent, even greater damage than the Spanish Empire, because this was meant to be a more advanced empire, and it was more advanced in the techniques of repression and oppression. And this, of course, made Galliano a lifelong supporter of resistance movements, whether they were armed struggle movements, like the Cuban Revolution, like the Tupamaros, or whether they were the Bolivarian movements which emerged in the last years of the 20th century. And uh, his reflections <clears throat> were that we have to get stronger and stronger in order to preserve and maintain the challenge. The last time I spoke to him, we were both uh, in, in agreement that the changes taking place in South America were the most important things in the world at the time. And we now see that the influence of South America and the Bolivarians, we can see it in Spain with Podemos, and we can see it in Greece with Syriza. So this bridge that has been built, a bridge of ideas, this appealed to Galliano very much. What was his attitude to the media? Well, Caliano saw the corporate media like we all see it. It's the media of the enemy. They are clever because they have the money to show many things that we cannot show. Uh, they buy Hollywood films cheap. They buy soap operas cheap. And they preserve their mass audiences. But Galliano also knew very well that people were far too intelligent <clears throat> to believe the news that they saw on the corporate media. 
Some were taken in, but many people knew that these were lies. Otherwise, you cannot explain the continuous victories of uh, uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, the last victory of Maduro in Venezuela, the successive victories of Correa in Ecuador and Morales in Bolivia, despite the fact that a majority of the corporate media was ranged against them. And Galliano believed, you know, his involvement with the uh, historic newspaper uh, in Uruguay, La Marcha, with La Jornada, with the magazines in Argentina, that our principal task was to tell the truth, to deflate the lies, to explain and show to the people how they were lies, and to build all the time a permanent alternative to the corporate media. Okay, that was Tariq Ali <clears throat> talking about his colleague, uh, Uruguayan author Eduardo Galeano. Uh, some of Galeano's books. Uh, if you want to read about the history of the Americas, uh, and about the working class, especially in South America, but including North America as well. His appeal was a worldwide appeal. It was a broad appeal. The books are called Memory of Fire. There are three of them. And they talk about the history of the Americas from earliest times, the quote-unquote discovery of America, the discovery of Europe <laughs> up to the present day. Uh, and this latest book is called The Monster, The Desired Monster. How fear is used to uh, keep us, keep us, quote unquote, in our face, in our place, in their face, not in our place. Okay. All right. Let's play some music. Um, the Dodgers lost. And uh, I could have told you they would lose. They labor under the curse of how they got their stadium, Chavez Ravine. Uh, it was basically a, a little Mexican community of two little villages had a, a vibrant culture of its own. People knew each other. People got along. Different races got along. Because that was where they lived, right? And uh, the city of Los Angeles came and uh, decided that it would be a good place for a ballpark. They were being offered major money by by the Dodgers. They were trying to get the Dodgers to come and bring all the those jobs and business. Here's Ry Cooter, who grew up in L.A., singing about some guy looking at third base Dodger Stadium, remembering where his house was.
day you're a baseball man As anyone can plainly see Brady's scheme in his great plan Take a little tip from me I work in nights parking cars Underneath the moon and the stars that we all knew back in 1952 and if you want to know where a local boy like me is coming from third base Dodger
Now, here's a little feature about the Battle of Shevet's Ravine, the history behind the uh, the takeover. Amaru Tejeda is the On May 8, 1959, the Arechiga family and the rest of the remaining residents of the Chavez Ravine were forcibly removed from their homes by the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department to make way for the construction of Dodger Stadium. Members of the Arechiga family were physically carried out of their homes by sheriff deputies, restrained, and in the case of Aurora Vargas, even arrested. After years of resisting the seizure of their properties, the remaining families watched as bulldozers tore down the final standing homes of their once lively communities, destroying the legacy of what had been the three predominantly Mexican-American neighborhoods of the Chavez Ravine. The story of what would come to be known by many as the Battle of Chavez Ravine began a decade before the violent evacuations that occurred on May 8th, and long before Los Angeles politicians began making deals to move the Brooklyn Dodgers to L.A. In the years leading up to the 1959 evacuations, Los Angeles was experiencing rapid growth in urbanization, as well as an influx of problems associated with this kind of growth. Housing shortages and the development of high-density working-class communities of color, which city officials described as slums, required LA leaders to consider what a modernized LA would finally look like. Politicians and city planners began to consider government-sponsored public housing projects as a way to solve the city's housing shortages, as well as eradicate the so-called blighted slums of the city. In a project that sought to develop 11 new public housing sites for a price of $110 million, the City Planning Commission of Los Angeles marked Chavez Ravine as the largest of the blighted sites that needed to be replaced. Chavez Ravine was composed of three distinct neighborhoods, La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde. The three communities were predominantly Mexican-American, and each had retained a kind of semi-rural lifestyle. Families of these communities often kept live chickens on their properties, while many practiced small-scale farming and gardening. The majority of the residents lived below the poverty line. These families were able to remain self-sustaining, due in large part to their ability to live off of their land. In 1950, basing their decision on a narrow definition of what made a community a slum, the City Housing Authority of Los Angeles informed the residents of Chavez Ravine that their homes would be purchased from them at a price determined by the Housing Authority representatives, and then torn down and replaced with modern public housing projects. The residents of the Chavez Ravine were promised a space in the new housing, which would be named Elysian Park Heights. The city set up offices in the three communities of Chavez Ravine to answer any question residents might have, and to encourage them to sell. Representatives told residents that the new housing sites would not significantly change their lifestyles and would only improve their living conditions by bringing electricity and a functional sewage system to the area. While most families sold their properties and left Chavez Ravine, many refused to sell until they were paid what they felt was a fair price for their homes. Others resisted being forced to leave their family-built homes that they'd lived in for generations. Before the city could begin its efforts to force the resisting families to concede to the housing authority's demands, a shift in the political climate of Los Angeles brought the project to a screeching halt. Reflecting a national trend brought on by McCarthyism and rising tensions caused by the Cold War, government programs came under fire for, for their supposedly communist values. The proposed public housing projects were criticized as a form of creeping socialism. As a result, the project and its proponents suddenly experienced extreme backlash against the projects that had already begun. 
In a series of court cases and voter referendum propositions, the city attempted to clear itself from its responsibility to uphold the contract it had made with the city housing authority. Eventually, a negotiation was reached. The housing authority would continue with most of their public housing sites, but the two largest, which included Chavez Ravine, would be completely canceled. This proved only a small victory. By then, most residents had already moved away, and the Chavez Ravine had largely become a ghost town. In 1953, reflecting the public sentiment against the so-called creeping socialism, Norris Polson ran for mayor of Los Angeles, with anti-public housing at the forefront of his platform, and won. After playing a pivotal role in the city's cancellation of the Chavez Ravine site, Polson began to consider what his own vision of a modern Los Angeles was. In 1957, he struck a deal with Walter O'Malley, owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who was looking to move his team westward. Polson offered up Chavez Ravine, which the city had received ownership of as part of the negotiation with the housing authority, as a possible site for the construction of a new state-of-the-art stadium to house the baseball team. Two years later, the remaining residents of Chavez Ravine would once again be asked to sell their homes. This time, the city would have no patience for families who refused to sell. The Arechiga family, who had become somewhat of local celebrities for their vocal resistance to the city's claim of their property, became the primary targets of the evacuations that occurred on May 8, 1959. Despite having been promised residences in the new housing project, and despite claims that the culture and lifestyle of the Mexican-American residents of these communities would not be changed, in 1962, Dodger Stadium opened to the public. Polson's vision of a modern LA had been realized, but at the expense of the 3,800 people who had once called Chavez Ravine home. Okay, the story beneath the story, the story behind the World Series, where the real World Series is fought, the Battle of Chavez Ravine. This was one of the first, uh, one of the most prominent instances of red baiting. The city council members who fought for the preservation of Chavez Ravine, of actually keeping the city's promise to allow those residents to move in first. Uh, they were called communists. And uh, eff effectively red baited out of the way, out of the government. Okay. It's about 12.30 now, 11.30? I want to remember this day, on this day in 1983, lifelong militant May Picaray died in France, age 95. Picaray, I don't know. That's good French or not. Daughter of a seamstress and a postman, she was heavily involved in workplace organizing, fighting for women's rights, and during World War II was active in the French resistance. After liberation... She continued her activism in the French anarchist and working class movements until the end. Okay, a real hero of the working class movement, of the worldwide working class movement.
There's a little feature of something we covered last week, and I wanted to go over it again. The Radium Girls, the women who were who worked in factories painting the painting radium on people's watches, without being warned about the possible harm it was doing them. The Radium Dial Painters. Well, I thought I didn't like it. Because after, you know, they learn you to put the thing in your mouth, that's the first thing they you. And I felt when I went home at noon, I'd never come back. The 1900s was a time of triumph and misery. World War I had been going on, and soon came the Great Depression. But in the midst of this, one problem arises, the radium dial painters. The radium dial painters were women who had been hired to paint a radium paste onto clocks to make them glow in the dark. But unknowingly, they were all poisoning themselves. The radium dial painters served as a turning point as they shaped labor laws and ultimately reformed industrial working conditions. Discovered in 1898 by Mary Curie, radium was thought to be the cure to all cancer. Radium is a pure white radioactive metal in the alkaline earth metal family. Mary Curie found this element as she was interested in radioactivity and she found other radioactive elements earlier in her life. In the early 1900s, radium was known as the miracle elixir and was used as a medicine for hair loss, high blood pressure, and virtually anything else. Some people drank a drink called Radithor, which was very popular and said to make you stronger. Radium, though, was mainly used as a cosmetic and for the painting of glow-in-the-dark watch styles. <clears throat> there are many side effects to radium, some severe and some not. Radium in large doses can also cause cancer, teeth fracture, anemia, and can eventually lead to death. In the early 1900s, <coughs> World War I had been going on overseas in Europe. Most battles of World War I were fought in trenches. These trenches were very dark and required a wristwatch that could be visible to the eye in the dark. As this watch was necessary, women at the time were craving for a job and dial painting was perfect for them. Dial painting promised them relatively easy work and comparatively high wages, making about $18 a week. Most dial painters were single and lived with their parents. Over 2,000 women went to work at the United States Radium Factory in Orange, New Jersey. The women went to work five and a half days a week, each making around 250 watches each day. At the building, about 70 women would go to work in a long, dusty room. They mixed water, glue, and radium powder together to make a paste. This paste was painted onto each clock with a fine point brush. After a few strokes, the brush would lose its shape and would need to be repointed so the woman could paint accurately. Grace Fryer, a radium dial painter, once said, Our instructors told us to point them with our lips. I think I pointed mine with my lips about six times to every watch dial. It didn't taste funny. It didn't have any taste. The workers had no idea of any possible side effects caused by the radium, although there may have been some signs of negative effects. It was a little strange. When I blew my nose, my handkerchief glowed in the dark, but I knew it was harmless, says Fryer. 
The first illnesses linked to industrial radium poisoning came to light in Orange, New Jersey in 1922. Grace quit her job in 1920 and pursued for a better job to be a bank teller. About two years later, her teeth started falling out and a pain in her jaw formed. She went to a series of doctors who had seen nothing like this before. An x-ray of her mouth showed serious bone decay. Also, reports of illnesses came in 1924 when four dial painters unexpectedly died. All of these victims' x-rays showed the same thing Grace's showed. In 1925, one doctor suggested that all of these illnesses were caused by working at the U.S. Radium Corporation. This is when the Consumers League stepped in. A group formed in 1899, the Consumers League fought for an end to child labor, a safe workplace, minimum pay, and decent working hours for women. They were requested by the City Health Department of Orange, New Jersey to investigate the death of the four dial painters. The causes of these deaths were counted as phosphorus poisoning and syphilis, but the factory workers suspected that the dial painting ingredients had something to do with it. Chairman of the Consumers League, Catherine Wiley, contacted Alice Hamilton, a Harvard University authority on workers' health issues, to address the issues. Also, a colleague at Harvard, Cecil Drinker, was asked to examine the working conditions at U.S. Radium. Drinker found a heavily contaminated workforce, unusual blood conditions in virtually everyone, and an advanced radium necrosis in several workers. At this time, in 1925, the owners of U.S. Radium Corporation found out that the cause of these deaths of the woman were because of radium. Drinker suggested a change in procedures at the factory, but Arthur Roeder, the president of U.S. Radium, resisted these suggestions. At the same time, Roeder refused to give Drinker permission to publish his findings about the radium diseases at the plant. He even threatened legal action against Drinker. Catherine Wiley of the Consumers League wanted U.S. Radium to pay for some medical expenses for Grace Fryer and some of the other women who were having problems. Roeder said that Fryer's and the other women's conditions had nothing to do with radium, but rather phospho jaw or something very similar to it. That year, in 1925, Drinker ignored U.S. Radium's threats and continued to publish his findings in a scientific journal. There are many radium dial painters, but out of all of those, five made a name for themselves. Their names were Grace Fryer, Edna Hussman, Catherine Chubb, and sisters Kinta McDonald and Albina Laris. These five people were the first to take the case to court in 1927. Leading them was lawyer Raymond Berry. Raymond Berry then filed a lawsuit on their behalf, asking for $250,000 for each of the five women in compensation for medical expenses and pain. The five dying women became known in newspaper articles throughout the world as the Radium Girls. Raymond Berry presented the case of Amelia Maggia, a sister of Quinta McDonald and Albina Laris. Amelia had passed away in 1922 from syphilis. Joseph Neff was the doctor who had looked after her. At first he thought that it might have been phosphorus, but further examination disagreed. Dr. Neff stated, before Miss Maggia's death, I became suspicious that she might be suffering from some occupational disease. He questioned the U.S. Radium Corporation for the formula of radium, but they refused to comply. Neff then wrapped a jawbone in dental film and examined it. 
He saw that the jawbones contained radium necrosis, a very high level of radium. As a request by Raymond Berry and the Magia sisters, an autopsy was to be performed on Amelia. The autopsy confirmed that her bones were highly radioactive. Clearly, she had not died of syphilis. Now, the radium girls were doomed for an early, painful death. Before the case was to go to trial, the five radium girls and the U.S. Radium Corporation agreed they would receive $10,000 and $600 annually for the rest of their life. Meanwhile, the president of the Consumers League, Florence Kelly, wrote to Alice Hamilton, saying she was haunted by the cold-blooded murder in industry. The media response to the case was tremendous. The media exploded after the case was presented and they immediately sided with the radium girls. Many newspapers soon followed describing the horrifying experiences. By 1931, 36 women died due to the cause of radium. 18 died from radium poisoning, 13 from radium diseases, and 5 from cancer. The nation mourned the loss of the radium dial painters, but the women have proved to be a turning point many times in both labor and sciences. For years to come, workplaces will be more safe. The greatest achievement of the radium dial painters was giving individual workers the right to sue employers due to labor abuses. By establishing this precedent, it also started the enactment of safety laws in workplaces that are still around today. These safety laws are designed to eliminate personal injuries and illnesses in the workplace. The most famous of these safety laws in the workplace was the Occupational and Safety Health Act. This act made sure employers provide for their workers with safe workplace and that they are free of any dangerous threats. They have also led to the development of the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. This act says that for the first time, minimum ages of employment and hours of work for people are regulated by federal law. They also hold a significance in science. The element radium was discovered as a deadly element and not to be used anymore in anything besides the use in science. Also, after the case of the radium girls, radiation safety standards were created for all workplaces for the rest of time. Okay, this is our part two of the radiation girls, and um, in this version, it did not mention that the 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 owners, the managers of uh, these factories, were always very careful to keep radium behind uh, lead lead covering. They were very keep careful to shield themselves. But no one told the women at the time that what they were doing was fatal. Amazing. On this day in 1913, the People's Army, a community militia, formed to resist police repression of demonstrations of the East London Federation of Suffragettes were fighting for women's rights and working-class emancipation, had its first paramilitary assembly in Gundrill in Victoria Park, London. Sylvia Pankhurst, a libertarian communist and daughter of famous suffragette Emmeline, 
was a key organizer of both the ELFS and the People's Army. Okay, women with guns. All these people who are running around talking about guns and their right to carry guns. How will they feel when women begin to get guns to defend themselves? How will they feel when people of color get guns to defend themselves? Maybe not so great about guns, huh? Eleven forty-three. We're about ready to get out of here, but uh, let's play a short one before we get on the uh, international. Go out with Calle Trece. Okay. Guerra.
Soy el boquete que dejó la bomba que cayó Lo que fecundó la madre que me parió Desde que nací soy parte de este menú Porque yo llegué al óvulo antes que tú Soy la selva que corre descalza En el medio del mar sobrevivo sin balsa Soy el caudal que mueve la corriente Los batallones que chocan de frente Ni rivales que vengan de hoy Ni siquiera los truenos me alzan la voz Soy tu derrota, tus dos piernas rotas El clavo en el pie que traspasó la voz Calle 13 is talking about the victims of war. Uh, and how they're ignored. This is the B and this is the Labor and Love Show. Hope you're having a good day. Having a good week. Uh, remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor.
And for the seas of mutiny radio dot I can't help but listen from to the there you can captain your own pirate ship Every as you sail through over forty four different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio FM has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for near five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. For a personal injury lawyer in San Francisco, look no further than Francis J. Shaheda. Mr. Shaheda did an amazing job with my case. First, he informed the courts about my case that had not been scheduled or submitted yet, despite the language on the citation. I was so confused and afraid of the legal system, but he did it all for me. He communicated promptly via email with any of my questions. I was afraid of an enormous fine for a small infraction, as well as a criminal offense on my record, but he spoke to the DA to have my case removed from criminal court and put into the community court system. I am so overwhelmingly happy with the results he generated and would recommend him to anyone with legal issues. This is a personal first-person narrative because Francis J. Shaheda helped me personally, helped Mutiny Radio go to him for personal injury issues. You can email him at www.personalinjuryattorney.com fjs.com again the law office of francis j shaheda in san francisco (laughs) 
Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion. We run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! The Night Space brings you high time story time every Wednesday night from 10 to midnight on Mutiny Radio. Listen to San Francisco's finest underground comedians read crazy stories written by me, Arden, on The Night Space. The Night Space featuring high time story time every Wednesday night from 10 to midnight on Mutiny Radio. High Time Story Time Volume 1 now available on Amazon.com for Kindle and electronic download. Howdy, people. You got the flat black plastic show coming to you from mutinyradio.fm.